millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show, A.K. Blakemore. On her new novel, The Glutton. A.K. Blakemore's The Man in Tree Witches won the Desmond Elliott Prize, was shortlisted for the Costa First Novel Award and was the Waterstones Book of the Month. She is the author of two full-length collections of poetry, Humbert Summer and Fondue, which was awarded the 2019 Ledbury Forte Prize for Best Second Collection. Her poetry and prose has appeared in the London Review of Books, Poetry, The Poetry Review, and The White Review, among other publications. And today we're here to talk about A.K. Blakemore's new novel, which is The Glutton. Amy, welcome mm-hmm. to Little Atoms. Thank you for having me. Tell us then, first of all, how you would describe the novel. Oh, God. Um, in Precis, I guess, it's kind of a twisted sort of Bildungsroman about a French peasant who was born in sort of the very just pre-revolutionary period and who was a polyphage, um, i.e. able to eat everything. Um, He's kind of a a figure of French folk legend, um, but he was also a real person. Um, He was an entertainer, a soldier, and for a very short and disastrous period of time, a spy in the French Revolutionary Army. So the novel is kind of a cradle-to-grave, slightly gothic biography, I suppose, fictionalised biography of Tahar. So when did you first come across this real-life figure? Oh, it it was years ago now, probably more than a decade, and um, it illustrates how long ago it was, because it was when BuzzFeed was still a big thing, and um, it must have been about this time of year, actually, because I think it was a BuzzFeed article that was something like, you know, 30 creepiest Wikipedia pages, which obviously is is very much my speed. Um, (laughs) So uh, I found his Wikipedia page through that kind of, you know, scrolling, scrolling, just uh, the facts of his life, kind of beggar belief. Um, it's one of those real life stories that is is kind of stranger than fiction. And I was surprised to find that no one had written a novel about him. There was an opera and there's been a puppet show, but no novel. And I was kind of obsessed with the idea of doing that for a very long time. This book didn't it didn't take a huge amount of time kind of pen to paper so to speak but it it's been percolating for probably getting on for 10 years in my mind 
And so what approach have you taken here then with the character? Because as you said, he is he's a real life figure and his mm. life is wild as it is. His real mm-hmm. life, real life life. That doesn't really make any <laughs> sense. Was um yeah. was crazy. But you describe in the afterword of the book that you've basically fictionalized obviously large aspects of it and other characters. And your approach here is not to attempt to portray a truth, but to look at the myth more. Tell me about your approach to him. Yeah, so he's fascinating because sort of the distinctiveness of his condition and his sort of apathetic personality made him sort of very notable to medical researchers and and stuff like that. But the near contemporary sources for his life and the primary source is an article that was published in a medical journal in Paris about seven years after Taha's death. And it was written by a doctor who had treated Taha when he was in the French Revolutionary Army. That document is is ostensibly a medical document, a scientific report on Taha. But even that document, even that article, is suffused with this kind of fabulism. He describes how Taha's countenance was so frightening that animals would flee from him in the street and how he smelt so bad that these kind of cartoon stink lines would rise off him. This stuff that obviously couldn't be true, although, you know, it's it's being reported as as fact. And that was really interesting to me. And I think the fact that even these ostensibly reliable and factual sources for Taha's life were, one, so, so full of holes and things that made no sense, but two, were so sort of fantastic and mythopoeic in their own right, kind of gave me permission to sort of echo that approach in fiction, <laughs> if that makes sense. So I, I kind of took the essential beats of his life from that article, uh, Memoir sur la polyphagie is the title. I sort of took the essential beats of Taha's life from that article, kind of, you know, he's born here in this year. Um, he leaves home around the age of 18. He travels to Paris. This is when he joins the army. This is when he dies. I have those kind of lodestars. But all the rest is pretty much a complete mystery. So I I got to make all that up, essentially. But I also, my approach in terms of the actual sitting down and writing was quite different from my first novel, The Manning Tree Witches. I didn't do a huge amount of planning beyond, as I say, those essential beats of his life, knowing what age he was going to be when certain things happened and, you know, sort of moving him from one location to another. You know, I I would kind of sit down to write a scene and I kind of knew how it would have to start and how it would need to end and what characters would be involved. But I didn't necessarily know how it was going to get there. Taha is a character who is very, very impulsive and apathetic and not a great planner, shall we say. Um, Not one of life's great thinkers and reflectors. And it felt like the best way to get a a compelling representation of his life and his character was in my own writing, kind of trying to mirror that spontaneity and that apatheticness, (laughs) if that makes sense. Yeah, and I wanted to sort of expand on this as well in terms of his character, because he is like, like he reminded me of like Candide or something. He's like a sort of, (laughs) like a, you know, he he clearly grew up uneducated, a French peasant, but Mm. he has this sort of like holy fool, like sort of like innocent almost sort of like village idiot type sort of effect. Um, and mm. instant being like an uh, apposite word here, because like clearly 
he is very, very, very far from how he would describe someone as innocent as the sort yes. of novel goes on in terms of his behaviour and things he gets involved in and things he does. But just tell us something about this version of this man who is who is basically a naive figure. Um, yeah, holy fool is exactly one of the phrases that was kind of um, in my mind when I was writing him. And I think that also ties into, so a lot of the research I did was into French fairy tales and French kind of oral storytelling traditions, which obviously were a massive part of rural peasant life. You know, there'd, there'd be these gatherings called valets where everyone in the village would gather around a great fire and people would tell stories. Stories and fairy tales were this kind of currency, you know, they'd be carried from one region to another, changing and permuting in that way that fairy tales and kind of, um, you know, as sort of oral artifacts do. And fairy tales, are, you know, I, I love fairy tales and I love the different variations on them. And French fairy tales tend to have a different sort of moral complexion to English fairy tales or even German fairy tales. And they're heroes rather than being good or being innocent or being these kind of um, vessels for Christian love or whatever tend to be very wily and guileful. Kind of, you know, these figures like La Renard, kind of the fox. And I guess in with Tahar's character, he's sort of the opposite of that. I, I suppose I was sort of playing with that French fairy tale tradition of kind of the solitary guileful hero, kind of finagling his way through all these difficult or dangerous situations by sort of placing a holy fool <laughs> at the centre of those situations. I'm also kind of a sucker for, you know, I, I was trying to write sort of a Bildungsroman in the tradition of like Dickens sort of thing. And I think kind of that journey from innocence to experience is sort of at, at the heart of that as a denouement. So... I suppose I was sort of playing with it, those kind of different traditions and there was sort of this idea of, okay, well, what about a story of innocence to experience in which kind of the protagonist does retain like an essential innocence and an, a sort of apathy. Uh, he doesn't learn to affect the world around him. The world around him just affects him with greater intensity and greater intensity. Um, and that seemed like quite an interesting approach, especially to the setting, the French revolutionary setting, when the world was happening a lot to a lot of people, is perhaps one way of putting it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, I was going to raise this later, but you brought it up now. So the revolution is in this book. We know it's going on all the way through his life, mm. elements of the French revolution, but we never really see it directly, only, only the effects. Often we'll see the consequences of it. Obviously, a character like... Tarara, a huge historical event like the French Revolution, you know, that we look on back on now as such a, a major turning point, would have had no effect on his life whatsoever. He was just some like guy growing up in some, you know, uneducated, illiterate guy mm. growing up in a village. And so it it would not have been this like major life changing event. Um so tell us something mm. about how you use the the revolution as the backdrop in the novel. Sure. Well, I get it's something I'm interested in. As someone, you know, who's, who's written historical novels and, and just in day-to-day -day life, kind of the dissonance between the way we approach history as this series of epochs and significant events and how for, you know, just in day-to-day -day life, and I, I'm convinced this is, is pretty true throughout history, we seldom think of ourselves as living through epochs. You know, kind of people people don't wake up in the, the morning and kind of go about their business thinking about how World War One is happening. 
Um, or, you know, these epochal moments, I think, feel very differently when you're existing within them. And I suppose my approach to the French Revolution in the glutton, I'm sort of coming at it through that perspective. Tahar is not a revolutionary. He's illiterate. Um, he's not engaged with the broader politics of the revolution. And, you know, the politics of the revolution were in many ways uh, marred by hypocrisy and all these competing interests and factions. And there are a few moments in the book where the innocence and the sort of naivety of Taha's character and his sort of moral approach to the world seemed like quite a good way of dissecting those hypocrisies, dissecting the kind of pretentiousness and contradiction in the point of view of these middle or upper class revolutionaries who are still unable to overcome the profound disgust that the peasant body produces in them, for instance, who still, despite kind of the, the nobility of their sentiments or their enlightenment ideals, are unable to view a character like Tahao as anything other than chattel or um, a novelty to be exploited. So I think it's a novel in some ways kind of, it kind of comes in at the side of the French Revolution a little bit, but it's it's also kind of a novel about those enlightenment ideals and romantic ideals, which were sort of finding their genesis at this time. One of the things that is really fascinating to me about Tahao as fascinating as all the things he ate and, and his time as a performer was the way he was medicalized. Um, his experience with doctors and the kind of early clinical settings of revolutionary France. And I suppose kind of the dark side of what we think of as this moment of huge scientific and medical advancement, um, how that was enabled, how it was realized and the bodies it was realized upon. I suppose, you know, an, an interesting kind of, I suppose, less considered aspect of the French Revolution was that it enabled the birth of the clinic in Paris and in France and more broadly across Europe, because part of the revolution was a secularization, the separation of the apparatus of the Catholic Church from the operations of the country. And that allowed doctors to do lots of things they weren't able to do before, you know, dissections, keeping organs, um, which enabled research, but also enabled quite, you know, a frightful exploitation of the sort of people who had who had always been exploited. They were able to exploit them in new ways. And, and that was something that was quite interesting to me. And I, I wanted to get at in the book as well. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to A.K. Blakemore, and we're talking about her new novel, The Glutton. And Amy, the novel jumps backwards and forwards in time. Mm. I mean, it's told in in the third person, but as I said, it goes back and forth in time from Tara's present day to his past, re, you know, reminiscing about his past. Yeah. He's telling this story for the most part to a sister in the in the hospital where we find him. So tell us something about. Mm who your Tarar is when we first meet him in the novel. So the novel ends when he's sort of on his deathbed at about 27 years old. Not sort of on his deathbed. He's on his deathbed and telling his story, as you say, uh, to Sister Perpetue, who is a nun in the hospital, uh, the civil hospital of Versailles, which was where he died. And I suppose sort of the significance of that choice in some ways goes back again to this idea of kind of the French oral storytelling tradition and its importance to kind of peasant culture and um, a character sort of throughout his life to how is exploited, misunderstood, never listens to, never really paid anything but the most negative sort of attention. And I suppose the idea of him telling his story to a receptive, eventually receptive and, and non-judgmental listener felt like a kind of secular redemption almost for him as a character this idea of at last before he dies he gets to set out his story in his own terms felt like an important way to make sure that the novel wasn't too nihilistic or or too hopeless it was also added in a later draft of the novel so so the first draft was much more of a straight as I say, kind of buildings Roman cradle to grave situation, like it began on the day he was born and it ended on the day he died and there was no sister perpetuate. But something about it just didn't quite work. I kind of felt when I was rereading that draft, you know, you you open in in this village on the day a little boy is born, but you don't really know why you're learning about specifically this little boy. So just from the sort of the mechanics of a novel and approaching readers and kind of the the stakes being a bit higher, it felt important somehow 
to establish why Taha was significant or worthy of the reader's attention from the outset. So the Sister Perpetue framing device kind of serves a practical purpose as well, I suppose, from that point of view, hopefully, (laughs) in kind of making readers more invested from the outset in Taha as a character. She also works in that she's Sister Perpetue. Obviously, when this is taking place in the months before he dies, this is post the revolution. So Sister yeah. Perpetue herself, she's obviously a character that's out of time. She is working in this in this hospital, in the sort of like the new hospital system, I guess. And she has yeah. somehow survived. But she is like this character out of time. Yeah, she was... Um... She was very interesting to write, and I I had kind of lots of different versions of her in my head. I I neither wanted her to be a sort of wilting violet. Um, I didn't want her to be too much of a pushover. I wanted her to sort of push back and act as a foil against Taha in certain instances. But, you know, she is also a very young woman herself and one who in some ways, sort of despite the horrors she's lived through, has been incredibly sheltered and insulated from those horrors by virtue of her status as as a nun, as a as a holy woman. And she felt like, I suppose, an an interesting, a kind of different lens on this journey from innocence to experience. But she's sort of undergoing, you know, across the night she listens to Taha telling his story that involves its kind of various depravities and nastinesses. She's sort of undergoing a similar journey herself of innocence to experience. (laughs) And that's, I suppose, what I wanted to communicate was part of the fascination he holds for her beyond kind of the bizarreness of of his personal biography and, and of his person, is that he's kind of this artifact of the violence and nastiness and ugliness of the world outside which she has very little first-hand experience of. Because, you know, I, I suppose another another question I wanted the novel to ask is, why is the grotesque powerful? And why are we so fascinated by ugliness and death and sort of the depravity of the human condition? And Sister Perpetua is as well. <laughs> so I suppose she's kind of, in some ways, a a stand-in for the reader in that sense, and kind of a yardstick by which they can measure their own reactions <laughs> to aspects of Taha's story. Kind of often I felt that she was kind of perhaps saying things that I felt the most skeptical reader might say about Taha's story. Um, obviously, she's coming from the point of view of kind of Christian ethics <laughs> and the teachings of the Bible and of God. Uh, which a modern reader wouldn't be necessarily. But she's kind of voicing that disgust that a reader might find in themselves. So I think she was kind of a useful character from that point of view as well, in terms of perhaps helping a reader to suspend their disbelief when it came to the more extreme parts of his story. And we see the book begins to to flash back to when he is born and he's growing up in this peasant village in France. Um, with a a single mother in in the sort of modern coinage. Um, And we see the effect of this on his mother's life. And tell us something about Tara's relationship with his mother in these early years. 
So his mum is, you know, little more than child when she has to her, you know, and a force of circumstance is raising him alone. Uh, she turns to survival sex work. She later becomes a wet nurse. When I was doing my research for this book, one of the things that was very interesting to me in terms of its specificity in a French revolutionary setting, but also in terms of continuity with the present day, was the sheer precarity of peasant life, um, particularly rural peasant life in France. You know, all it took was having a fall and breaking your leg. You'd be unable to do the kind of work, the only sort of work that was available to you for the rest of your life. And there wasn't really any state support or safety net there for you. And Taha's mother, I think one of the most tragic things about poverty and, and very under-addressed things about poverty is the corrosive effect it can have on interpersonal relationships and familial relationships. The desperation of poverty and survival can drive out everything else. You're not able to relate to your family, to your children, to your parents in the way that money would allow you to, if that if that makes any sense. And I think that was one of the things I was interested in depicting in, in their relationship. Taha's mother loves him fiercely and he loves her back, but the precarity of their situation forces her to behave in certain ways and make decisions that are ultimately inimical or harmful to Taha, but she doesn't have a choice. So yeah, I mean, uh, I think their relationship, I, I hope, is kind of realised in a way that's quite poignant and that it's clear that the love they have for each other and the kind of interdependency they have on each other, um, even though by contemporary standards she is by no means a good mother, shall we say. Uh, she has no ability to protect Taha from the violence and the horror of the world around them without hurting herself or without hurting him more badly. So yeah, she's she's a character I really enjoyed writing and, and have a lot of sympathy for. Um, and just one more thing then before I get yeah. to, to read a bit. So Tara eventually gets a, a kind of a stepfather, a character called Nollet, who is a salt smuggler, mm. sort of violent criminal. And there's an incident that happens, which I won't describe, but from where plot-wise his capacious hunger seems to come from. Mm. Um, but I just wanted you to say quickly something more about just the idea of hunger as like a sort of wider theme of the novel. So I didn't want Dahar's hunger to be explicitly metaphorical. You know, that's a, a way that you can interpret it if you want to, and it would be very valid. But it's a, it's a physical thing and it, it defines sort of all aspects of the way he moves through the world and the way he relates to himself. He is never not hungry. And that was really interesting to me because while often presentations of Taha kind of paint him as this uh, jolly roly-poly, um, he's usually the butt of the joke. But the idea of being hungry all the time and never able to do anything about it struck me as the most nightmarish thing that could happen to a person. So I guess I kind of wanted to to dig into the psychology of that. Um, how might it affect a person? How might it change the way you related to yourself and to other people? So I guess it's a hunger that's kind of both metaphorical and, and literal in the world of the universe of the novel. And yeah, I guess his hunger can be what the reader wants it to be. And, and that felt like quite an important thing. <laughs> 
So to finish this off, then, can I get you to read us a bit? Okay. This is a very short section from the beginning of the second third of the novel when Taha is around 18 years old and he has just experienced an act of violence that has driven him from his home and uh, altered the course of his life irrevocably, although he doesn't really know it yet. And there's also a talking cow. 1788. Taha is hungry and aching and tired. He finds himself in a pasture when his clogged feet, sticky with dried blood, give way beneath him. The shaft of the axe slips from his benumbed fingertips. He has made his way into another morning, more or less. A haze is rising from the tuffets of grass. There is cool moisture on his chin and on his tongue. He decides to lie a while and rest. His eyes are half open to the pale gloaming. Something has happened to Tahar. Something has been done to him, he knows, the work of a fair devil. Inside, he feels his mind scabbing, hardening around the sore places, his thoughts, torpid as they are, running new channels, shaping new inlets at the edge of his wounded soul. It is slowly, slowly that he becomes aware of them, their red-brown clouded hides shifting their sour hefts around him in the long grass, a rough, warm tongue licking the blood from his hands. She muzzles his chest, then lowers herself into the grass a few feet away. Her sigh, redolent of sugars and rhizomes, warms his face. Ta opens his eyes. Cow, cow, she is beautiful, crowned in a dither of midges, silver-edged in the morning sun, a balderkin of pure and pale blue sky. She looks at him. Her eyes are deep and thoughtful. Hello, cow, says Ta Hello, Ta says the cow. Can I stay in your field for a while? I have nowhere else to go. No, the cow answers through a mouthful of cud. The farmer will come before too long with his dogs and his boys and chase you away. The farmer can try, says Taha, but I'm not sure I could move even if I wanted to. He tries to flex his shoulders, but even this slight movement revives the totalizing pain in his body. Then his dogs will tear you apart and eat you. So be it, says Taha. Will you watch over me while I rest? I can watch, says the cow, but I can do nothing to keep the dogs from you. Time has worn my teeth flat as pegs and stripped the muscle from my haunches, says the cow. She raises her head to gaze across the steaming pasture. Our ancestors were mighty, she says, and they had thick fur a person could sink their arm into the elbow and long-tipped horns that cradled the new moon, and they gathered in great herds to eat the best grasses that grew by the meltwater, and they were strong and called the aurochs, and men like the farmer and his boys took fright to see them and were proud when they killed them. All this the cow says with her deep, thoughtful eyes. I'm sorry, says Tahar. The cow lowers her head to nibble at a frill of mallow, but says no more. Tahar sleeps then. So I've been talking to A.K. Blakemore. We've been talking about her new novel, The Glutton, which is out in the UK now from Granta. Amy, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with me. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed our conversation. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. Mom 
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.